Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 71, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are looking at the Superman story from the pages of Action Comics number 28, which is the first in a series of Action Comics Superman stories illustrated by Jack Burnley, who was also the illustrator of the Superman story in the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. Before we get into the story, though, I've got a couple bits of feedback. First up is an email from Adam with the subject line, Faster Than a Daily Planet Extra Edition. And he writes, Michael, thanks for making the thrilling adventures of Superman. You often question how quickly an extra edition of the Daily Planet, or Star as the case may have been, and I was inclined to agree with you before I ran across this article about the survivors of the Titanic. Toward the end of the article, they mentioned that due to its resourceful reporters at the time, the New York World had an edition out with interviews from the survivors before the Carpathia had docked. And he then links to an article at transportationnation.org, which I will try to remember to link to in the show notes. Uh, it's headlined, 100 Years Ago, Arrival of Ship-Carrying Titanic Survivors Set Off Media Frenzy in NYC. The headline doesn't really bury the lead, as the article talks about how quickly news spread in the media of the day once you know word got back to land. Uh, But then Adam continues, In these days before TV news and way before the internet, I think our intrepid reporters may have actually been able to get stories out in the speed that is sometimes depicted in the stories. I agree, though, that sometimes related story elements require a healthy amount of suspension of disbelief. Keep up the great work, Adam. And thank you, Adam. And yeah, I think you're right. I think sometimes I am a little guilty of underestimating how quickly they were able to get news out 70 years ago. With so much information and communication at our fingertips these days, we often forget that it wasn't a complete stone age before internet and cell phones. Um, On the other hand, some stories, some Superman stories we've looked at have shown there being an addition out before Clark can even get back to the office, which I think would be pretty much impossible even given a, a big city like New York or Metropolis. Uh, But you do make a good point, and I I appreciate you sending me the article. It's the little bits of history like that 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 really interest me more than the broad strokes, really. Uh, But the second bit of feedback is a website comment, actually. And many of you will remember several episodes ago, I talked about a set of Superman bubblegum cards sent to me by Steve Rogers. Uh, This was actually a reprint set originally produced by Gum Inc. in 1940 or 1941. They're in a permanent gallery linked on the side of the site, so check them out if you haven't. But Phil asked in response to the gallery, Are there any more reprint sets? I've seen another set with an all-white back and the word Superman printed repeatedly in red and blue. And I replied on the site, I'm not sure. I don't really know much more about these cards than, than what Steve said when he sent them to me. I've never heard of a second reprint set, and I couldn't find anything in a brief search through Google. It could be that they are knockoffs, but I don't really know. Um, It's weird. The reprint set reprints the cards exactly. They don't have an updated copyright on them. Um, So I I don't know how copyright and trademark works with uh, trading cards like this. Uh, If they fell out of the... um, you know, if they fell into public domain, it could be another group picked them up and reprinted them, but only reprinted the the fronts. 
I don't know. Uh, but if anyone has any information about a second reprint set with only Superman printed on the back rather than the story paragraph, or, you know, again, if you have more information about the cards beyond what's on the site, uh, either head on over to the site and respond, or send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com, and I will share that in a future episode. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com Action Comics number 28 was released on or about July 23rd, 1940 for a price of 10 whole cents. That puts it likely coming out just a couple days after the end of The Chosen, the storyline from the Sunday strips that we looked at last episode. And a day after the beginning of the radio storyline that we'll be looking at next episode. The dailies were in the midst of a storyline we'll be looking at probably in late June. It has a September cover date, and the cover, which was penciled and inked by Paul Cassidy, shows Superman leaping into frame like some glorious angel on his way to rescue a man who is about to be thrown off a rooftop by another man. It's a phenomenal cover, showing both Paul Cassidy's art and Superman at their early Golden Age best. Superman looks awesome. The background is detailed, but not so detailed that it detracts from the focal point, which is our hero. Superman's cape is a little stiff, but that's my only significant complaint on what is otherwise a dynamic and, and very eye-catching cover. The shield on Superman's chest is fairly large and bold and stylistically looking really as much like the now traditional S-shield as we've seen. It's a bit more shield-shaped than the, than the pentagonal shape that the shield later takes on, but this does seem like a definite intermediate step between the original shield, which was typically a straight triangle, and what will become the classic S-shield. And the look of the S-shield on the cover is especially notable given the artwork inside, which presents a much different look for the shield. The issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth, and the Superman story inside was written by Jerry Siegel, of course. kind of feel weird saying that every time, but 
I do think it's important to point out when, when Jerry Siegel is writing, since he was, of course, the co-creator of the character. Uh, but the art, as I said, was done by Jack Burnley, who we first talked about back in episode 58 when I covered the second World's Fair comic. Burnley is often cited as the first person outside of the Schuster shop to illustrate a Superman story, as he worked directly for DC rather than Jerry and Joe. This is the first of a seven consecutive issue stint that Burnley did for Superman in Action Comics. After that, he'll start focusing on other characters as well, including Starman and Batman, in addition to some Superman work here in the comics as well as in the newspaper. I'll say I'm not sure why Burnley did this stint on Action Comics. He's a phenomenal artist, and I've got no complaints at all about it, but it's just it's always struck me as odd since he didn't work for the Schuster shop. But while I can't speak as to why he did the run, I think it does, again, show the growing control that DC had over the character at this point. Uh, but to get into things, our story was untitled originally, but it's since been called The Strongman Robberies. Superman, dynamic defender of law and order, encounters a man of brawn who uses his strength to defeat justice. The result? A thrilling battle of wits and muscle, in which Clark Kent, meek Daily Planet reporter, plays a vital role. It feels like a very radio-inspired opening to me, as they've, on the radio show they've always had the, the short couple sentences kind of introducing the show and maybe hinting a little bit at the story, but not really giving a, a, a prologue or, or, an, or an opening summary. Uh, but as we open, the city of Metropolis is baffled by a series of robberies and muggings committed by a large, muscular man wearing only a leopard-skin leotard, sandals, and a domino mask. Clark is assigned by Editor Taylor to do a story on the robberies, but warned to be gentle should he run into Mr. Leopardskin. And don't think I'm being snarky calling him Mr. Leopardskin. That's actually what Taylor calls him. I, I think it's Taylor being snarky, but... I find the name amusing and far better than anything I could come up with, so Mr. Leopard Scan it is. Anyway, Clark is assigned to cover the story, and after some sharp words from Lois Lane about how big of a wimp Clark is, Clark cordially heads out with Lois, who goes along for no reason in particular that I can discern, and they start walking to police headquarters. On the way, Lois sees a billboard advertising the amazing Herculo, the world's strongest man, who is performing at the Bar None Daily Circus. Realizing that Herculo matches the description of the strong-arm robber, and that the crime started when the circus came to town, Lois and Clark head to the circus and interview Mr. Jenkins, the circus owner. Jenkins invites them to stay and watch the show, and then they'll discuss the reporter's suspicions. With nothing better to do, they agree and watch the high dive act, which includes a performer diving into a flame-covered pool of water. Jenkins explains that he's had his suspicions about Herculo as well, since similar crimes have taken place in every town they visit. Later, Jenkins introduces Lois and Clark to Herculo, and after Lois flirts with Herculo, and he crushes Clark's hand, or so Clark lets him think, with a manly handshake, Herculo begins to brag about how he's so awesome and how he can take on ten men with one hand. Lois responds that Superman is even more awesome, and he would be able to beat up Herculo blindfolded with both hands tied behind his back. Who is this Superman? Bring him to me, Herculo bellows. I will crush him. Come to me, Superman, if you dare. I defy you. Come and kneel before Herculo. 
Okay, he doesn't actually say that, but that's exactly the way I picture Herculo acting. But uh, Clark, Clark tells Lois that he'll advertise Herculo's challenge in the paper, and hey, maybe Superman just might show up. A clown randomly shows up and offers to referee, and later Clark buys 100 tickets to that afternoon's performance of the show to give to orphaned kids. Jenkins goes to get the tickets, and after telling Lois to stay with Herculo, you know, the guy they suspect of being a robber and a mugger, Clark follows. Once alone, Clark pulls a small canister from his coat pocket and dumps a powder on the money, and soon Clark gets the tickets, and he and Lois start to leave. We learn here that Lois's flirting is, apparently, just to get information. Because I guess cozying up to criminals is a good idea? I don't know. It's Lois, and she's incredibly insane, as we've seen. So, ladies, don't try this at home. Anyway, as they're leaving, they run smack into Mr. Leopardskin himself, who punches Clark dead in the face. Not wanting to give up his secret identity with Lois nearby, Clark goes down, and Mr. Leopardskin runs away with Clark's money as Lois screams for help. Lois helps Clark up while berating him for getting punched in the face, and Clark only responds by asking her if it's really worth risking their lives over $10, two credit cards, a hairbrush, and a lipstick. Lois says she's going to demand Herculo's arrest, but Clark says they don't have any evidence that it was Herculo, which only causes Lois to call Clark a big coward and then storm off in a huff. Sometime later, Clark and Lois return to the circus, along with an entire bus full of kids. After seeing the kids to their seats, Clark excuses himself and tells Jenkins he's putting a plan into action to catch the thief. He then returns to Lois and the kids, but as the circus begins, Clark slips away again and gets ready to go into action as Superman. Creeping through the circus grounds on the prowl for Herculo, he comes across the performer's tent and uses his x-ray vision to watch inside where Herculo and the clown are getting ready. However, Herculo sees Superman's shadow on the side of the tent, and somehow unseen by the guy using his x-ray vision to watch him, slips around to the back of the tent and tries to tackle Superman. But the Man of Steel counters with a totally awesome judo flip, leaving Herculo flat on his back. After he recovers, Herculo tells the clown to referee their match, but the clown says he's got something else to do and goes to get Jenkins to take his place. Soon, Herculo and Superman are gathered in the center ring. As the kids and adults in the audience cheer for the spectacle they are about to witness, Jenkins introduces the two competitors and officially starts the contest. Herculo attacks Superman with a punch to the gut, but only succeeds in hurting his hand. As Superman stands stoic, Herculo unleashes a seemingly never-ending barrage of blows, to no effect. Finally, he tries an underhanded eye gouge, but Superman merely grabs Herculo by the wrist, flips him overhead, and slams him into the ground. Much to Superman's amazement, though, Herculo comes after him again. As Herculo goes in for a headbutt, Jenkins warns Superman to get out of the way, but he simply stands firm as Herculo smashes his head into his chest, causing the circus behemoth to fall flat on his back once more. At that, Jenkins declares Superman the winner and offers him a job in the circus. Sorry, Superman responds, but there's a mission I devoted my life to, and nothing else can interfere. As a show of no hard feelings, Hercules tries to shake Superman's hand, but the two end up engaging in a manly game of one-upsmanship as each tries to outsqueeze the other's hand. Superman wins out in the end, of course, as Herculo winds up on one knee, begging for mercy. 
Herculo finally concedes that Superman is the better man, but Superman tells him in what I imagine is not anywhere near the patronizing tone that Lois would have that he's plenty strong as well. Meanwhile, the kids in the crowd cheer as they want more of Superman. Not one to disappoint, the Man of Steel does a great somersault tumble across a row of elephants and then runs laps around the tent faster than the eye can blink. As the crowd continues to cheer, Superman pauses and then runs forward before leaping up, up into the air. He then whirls like a top, descending downward, finally landing safely in a center ring, much to the delight of the audience. Happy as a pig in mud, Jenkins heads off to call the newspaper about Superman's appearance, hoping to get some free publicity. Never mind the fact that there are, to his mind, two reporters sitting right in the audience. However, passing by the performer's tent, he sees the clown, furiously trying to hide his hands with a rag. Jenkins enters and demands to see the clown's hands, which he finds are a bright red. Realizing that that must mean the clown, not Herculo, is the strong-armed bandit, Jenkins chases the clown back to the main tent, just as the high-dive act is getting ready to perform. Trying to avoid getting caught, the clown grabs Jenkins and throws him towards the flaming pool. Seeing their plight, Superman lunges forward, grabbing both Jenkins and the high-dive artist mere seconds before they collide in a fiery death. Superman then goes after the clown, who tries shooting Superman, but the bullets just bounce off the Man of Steel's chest. The clown grabs Lois to use as a human shield as he makes his escape, but out of nowhere comes Herculo, delivering a stiff uppercut to the clown's jaw, knocking him out and saving the girl reporter. Seeing he's no longer needed, Superman takes his leave, and later Clark catches up with Lois and Jenkins, and we get a couple panels of exposition explaining that the clown was a former strongman for the circus. When Jenkins hired Herculo, he gave the former strongman a job as a clown, but the guy still held a grudge and set out to frame Herculo and try to bring down the circus. We then find out the powder that Clark dumped on the money earlier in the story was in fact red dye, which is what turned the clown's hands red and allowed him to be caught, literally red-handed. Then you're the one who really trapped the thief, Lois says, amazed. Yes, Clark replies, your precious Superman isn't the only one with brains. The End Getting into the notes, our splash this time is a half-page shot of Superman leaping into the air to catch a trapeze artist who has fallen. It's not the greatest splash, but it is a great showcase for Jack Burnley's Superman. And it does sort of tie into the story in that it's a scene from a circus. Um, Superman doesn't save any trapeze artists in the story, but, you know, maybe he did it off-panel and... Even if not, it's better than a a random eagle kidnapping a a young boy. So, points for that. It's also interesting that this splash is, again, using the hand-drawn version of the Superman logo type. I haven't looked too far ahead, but I'm curious when exactly they start using the refined version and only the refined version. And even though we'll probably never know why it seems like there's such a prolonged time before it comes or becomes consistent. Uh, You'd think if they went to the trouble of actually refining it and making it look good that they would use it on every story from there on out, but I don't know, maybe maybe some of these stories were done early. It's really hard to tell when these stories were done. I mean, they they may not have been we assume they were done in, in rough order of publication, but it's just hard to tell with so many artists working, especially when you've got someone like Jack Burnley who's working outside of the shop 
it's just really difficult to tell. Um, this note carries over to page two as well, but note how this story opens. We spend just shy of a page following Mr. Leopardskin as he commits his various crimes. We then see a newsboy crying the headline, which is a great transition into the Daily Planet and Clark getting assigned the story. This goes back to what I said a couple episodes ago about the comics being better about getting Superman or Clark involved in the story. Yes, he's still getting an assignment from the editor, but we lead into it more naturally. Instead of the opening scene being Clark getting his assignment or or already on his way to it, we build up to it naturally. And I, I like that, and I hope the radio show picks up on that pretty soon. Uh, Mr. Leopardskin, and yes, again, I'm going to keep calling him that because it's the closest thing we get to a name for him. Um, but it's he's dressed in a leopardskin leotard, sandals that lace up his shin, and a domino mask. As costumes go, it's pretty goofy. But when you're you know six foot six and three hundred pounds of pure muscle, you can pretty much wear anything you want to wear. And I'm kind of torn on whether whether or not this could count as Superman's first costumed villain in the comics. On one hand, he clearly is wearing a costume, but on the other hand, it was only to make people think he was Herculo. So, I'm kind of torn on it. Um, What do you think? Write in and let me know. Page 2, I like the banter between Clark and Taylor when Clark is getting his assignment. Taylor tells him to get whatever information he can on it, and then says, and if you meet Mr. Leopardskin, don't handle him too severely. And Clark replies, I'll try to be gentle. It's not deep character or anything, but we don't often get these moments like that in the stories from this era, especially the comic book stories. So you got to take what you can get. Uh, the circus's name here is the Barnan Daily Circus. Barnan and Daily. Think about that. Page 3, Clark buys 100 tickets to the circus and then decides he should buy some for the Daily Planet Newsboys as well. Once again, I'm at a loss as to where Clark is getting all this money from, but I did like seeing him buy the tickets for the orphans. I thought that was a very nice touch and definitely feels like something that Superman would use his Clark Kent identity to do. Also, as, as I mentioned, Clark heads off to get the tickets and just leaves Lois there with Herculo, the man they suspect of being a robber and a mugger and doing all these crimes. Now, granted, maybe they didn't think he was dangerous, especially not in broad daylight, but Lois's behavior towards Herculo certainly makes little sense given that she's flirting with him. And yes, maybe it was just to get information, but it, it just it's, it's, very, it's very weird. It just kind of feels like Siegel either momentarily forgot that Herculo was the suspect or that he played that angle up too strongly at the beginning of the story. Page 4. It was clever, though. Clark using the powder on the bills. That was a very Batman-esque trick. Actually, this whole story kind of feels like a Golden Age Batman story, um, except Bill Finger probably would have had a murder or two thrown in somewhere along the lines. Um, maybe by Batman himself, depending on when the story was published. Um, They they don't exactly explain where Clark got the powder from, though, do they? Hmm. I guess it's something he just carries with him, you know, just in case. I don't know. Uh, Jumping ahead to page 7, I loved the excitement of the kids as they were getting ready to see Superman fight Herculo. Superman 
as we've seen, is still not either particularly well-known at this point or the smiling, hands-on-hips hero that he will become. But much like what happened with Batman, there seems to be this period where he's becoming more well-known and, and more people in the story are realizing that he's okay as long as you're on the right side of the law. I doubt it was something that either Jerry Siegel or Bill Finger were consciously doing, but I appreciate that there's not simply a jarring switch for either character like I'm sure a lot of people think there was. Uh, the fight between Herculo, which starts here and lasts all the way over to page 9, was really fun. It's, it's really not much of a fight at all, really, but it was fun seeing Herculo try to take Superman down and think maybe, just maybe, he might be able to do it, opposed to most of the other physical confrontations where a guy just tries to punch Superman and then gets slapped down. Uh, jumping way ahead to page 12, Jenkins comes across the clown, <laughs> who is who is actually the strong arm bandit, and his hands are completely red, so he got caught red-handed. Get it? Uh, to be fair, I don't have a problem with the idea here. I mean, Clark putting the powder on the bills was clever, like I said, and I like that. But it doesn't matter what kind of powder he put on the bills, it wouldn't turn the guy's hands completely red to the wrist. At most, it would only affect where his skin came into contact with the bills. Now, if it was an exploding dye pack or something, I could understand it, even though dye packs create like a big cloud of, of the dye to, to stain you know, more than just the person's hands. But at the same time, it's golden age, so I'm not going to harp too much on, on that particular point. And it's, it's, it's not too subtle at all with the red-handed thief, but at least they don't spend half a page pointing it out with exposition. So points on them for that, for letting the, the artwork pretty much you know, do the talking on that. Page 13, I loved Clark's snide comment to Lois here at the end. We've got these well-known, cliched ideas of Clark Kent being a wimpy milksop and, and Lois mooning over Superman while simultaneously spurning Clark. We're definitely seeing those in the stories, but what's interesting is, in at least a lot of the recent stories, we actually do see Clark standing up for himself somewhat and not just letting Lois run completely roughshod over him. And as we've seen in the radio show, he's much more... Uh, forthright and and <laughs> I hate to use the word manly, but you know he's he's the, he's as big of a hero as as Superman is a, a lot of times. And yes, Lois still harps on him, but uh, she really has no reason to do, as Charlie and I pointed out in some of the earlier episodes. And I think that's something that would surprise a lot of people who were exploring this era for the first time. Overall, you know, it's weird because that's all the page-by-page -page specific notes that I had. There just wasn't too much to say about the storyline, even though I did think it was a lot of fun. There was a nice little mystery. We had some Superman stunts, and it was actually a pretty straightforward and simple story, but it didn't feel at any point like Siegel was padding things out. The fight between Superman and Herculo could have been shortened up some, and we did have the sequence where he was entertaining the, the kids at the circus. But, like I said, I, I really enjoyed both of those parts, and as far as the Superman and Herculo fight, we haven't really seen that kind of confrontation before. And they work in the context of the story because 
Siegel led into them naturally. It's not like he, you know, he's going to to get an armored truck and and suddenly stops a baby or suddenly saves a baby from a tenement fire. That has nothing to do with the the rest of the story or like the story Josh and I looked at where he's dealing with this issue of getting aid to a foreign country and suddenly someone finds out his identity so he has to deal with that three pages before going back to the main plot of the story. So, I you know, even though they weren't necessarily directly related to the strong-arm bandit, Siegel led into them more naturally and they fit more comfortably within the confines of the story being set at the circus. So that was that was really great. There were some minor nitpicks I had, but not huge gaping plot holes in the story. So overall, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. Now you'll notice I've said very little about the art. <laughs> That's because I didn't want my comments about Burnley to dominate the notes, and I think they really could have because Burnley's art in this story is pretty outstanding. I don't think it's quite as strong as his work in the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. It kind of feels like he's trying to stick closer to the Schuster model for the character of Superman, as well as Clark and Lois. It's especially notable uh, in Lois's appearance here compared to Burnley's previous story, but still the art is very, very good. I mean, Superman looks fantastic. Burnley's Superman has a more athletic build compared to the barrel-chested bruiser of Schuster and Wayne Boring. But in this story, Superman still looks like Superman to me. Herculo looks good. He he actually looks like a strong man. And it's interesting comparing the body type of Herculo and Superman under the hand of Burnley. Because had Schuster or Paul Cassidy drawn this... Odds are the two would have been built very much the same. But like I said, with Burnley, Superman is... He's athletic, but it's more of a slender athleticism, like like a basketball player, where Herculo is built more like a football linebacker. There's a definite difference in size and height between the two, which I really, really liked and appreciated. Other characters in the story, uh, Clark and Lois and Jenkins, they all look good too. There's nice detail in the backgrounds, and uh, in a couple panels where we see them, the kids all look like excited young kids. Not to discount the story, because I really did enjoy it, but Burnley's art went quite a way in boosting my enjoyment of the story overall, as I just couldn't wait to get to the next panel or the next page. The whole thing is just beautifully rendered, and, and I'm excited that we'll have more Burnley work in upcoming issues of Action Comics. Oh, since I mentioned it earlier, I guess I should talk about the S-Shield. Much like when Burnley illustrated the World's Fair story, the S on Superman's chest is a small, inverted triangle, rather than the larger, classic S we've been seeing in recent stories. There's also no S on his cape again, so it'll be interesting to see if Burnley carries those two things forward through all of his stories, or if he will alter his style to match what the Schuster shop is doing at this point. I didn't look ahead and don't remember from previous reads, so we'll just have to see as we keep going forward. If you want to read this story featuring Superman's battle with Herculo and the fantastic art of Jack Burnley, it's been reprinted twice. First in Superman, the Action Comics Archives Volume 2, and then in Superman Chronicles Volume 4. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! 
Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. It's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Other features in this issue of Action Comics include Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. We've also got a full-page ad for Superman number 6, now on sale at all newsstands. The Big Six ad is present again, being expanded out again, but only to three-quarters of a page because there's a, uh, an advertisement for a candy bar below it. And then there are half-page ads for All-Star Comics and Mutt and Jeff, 1940 issue of uh, the World's Fair comic and the Superman radio program. And last but not least, we have our 15th Superman of America page. Our message from Superman talks about how America was built on the concept of fair play and how if readers are to follow the club's motto of strength, courage, and justice, they must always play fair in everything they do. The page also has Superman's secret message, which this time can be decoded using code SATURN, number 5 on our Superman of America Club decoders, and the message is, Play fair, even if defeat seems to be coming your way. Better to lose modestly than to win by cheating. Other books out in July 1940 included More Fun Comics, number 58, as well as Detective Comics, number 42, the Batman story in that issue of Detective has the distinction of being awarded the worst Batman story for the year of 1940 by both Michael Kaiser and myself over on Legends of the Batman. Not exactly the most auspicious honor. Also out was Adventure Comics number 53, featuring the first appearance of Jimmy Minuteman Martin in the Minutemen of America in the Hour Man strip. The Minutemen are a group of kids who are enlisted by our man in his war against crime, and they will make appearances in the strip for a little while. Also out was Superman number 6, which Josh Bertoni and I looked at a few episodes ago. Flash Comics number 9 had a cool Hawkman cover by Sheldon Maldoff. It shows Hawkman descending on a pistol-wielding man who is riding a horse and has a woman bound and gagged as a hostage. Uh, there's a dark, moonlit sky behind them, and it's, it's just a very moody cover. All-American Comics number 18 featured a story where Green Lantern Alan Scott prevents a kidnapping and murder at the World's Fair, and it's one of the only World's Fair tie-ins that I'm aware of outside of the two World's Fair issues we've looked at. And lastly from DC, there was Batman number 2, with four brand new stories, including a story involving both the Joker and Catwoman. And that was Catwoman's second appearance and the third appearance for the Joker, and... 
really the first team up between Batman villains, although they really didn't team up too much. Uh, it was the first time two uh, separate Batman villains had appeared in the same story, at any rate. Outside of DC, Marvel only had one book in Marvel Mystery Comics number 11, but Quality Comics came out with Smash Comics, featuring the first appearance of The Ray. And one other book worth mentioning is Top Notch Comics number 8 from MLJ Magazines, uh, later known as Archie Comics. That book features the first appearance of a character known as Roy the Superboy. Roy the Superboy is Roy Rossman, an orphaned shoeshine boy who is adopted by Blaine Whitney, a.k.a. the superhero known as The Wizard, who had first appeared in the uh, first issue of Top Notch Comics. The Wizard then trains Roy and the two fight crime together. The Superboy part of Roy the Superboy is sometimes written as two words, sometimes one, and sometimes hyphenated. I've never heard of any lawsuits from DC over this character, and that kind of surprises me. It surprises me that they didn't pounce all over it, given the similarities in name to their biggest character and the obvious ripoff in story to their second biggest character. Also, while visually Roy's costume, and more on that in a minute, couldn't be mistaken for Superman, the wizard, in addition to having wavy black hair, wears a blue unitard with red trunks and a flowing red cape. The only differences are that the wizard has blue boots and a blank chest. Oh, and he wears a thin red domino mask. But other than that, the costumes are nearly identical. If DC did sue, apparently it wasn't right away because Roy the Superboy appears regularly until Top Notch Comics ends with 27, issue 27, which is cover dated May 1942. Now, interestingly, DC produced a Superboy ash can, which, as I've explained in previous episodes, is a book put together to secure trademark on a title. But the Superboy ash can is dated January 1942, five months prior to when Roy disappeared into obscurity. As I mentioned, Roy's costume doesn't resemble Superman. However, he does sport a red and white striped shirt and blue trunks, which is very similar to the adult character of Stripesy, created by Jerry Siegel and Hal Sherman, uh, who debut in mid-1941. So it's interesting that Roy the Superboy lists strongly from two DC heavyweights, and then future DC characters in turn took elements back in a fashion, and there seems to be no lawsuits between the two companies over any of it. If anyone does know of any legal wrangling over the character, I'd be really interested in hearing about it. He apparently did get revived and retooled in an issue or two of Mighty Comics in the 60s, but was then rechristened Roy the Mighty Boy, as DC had a firm grip on the copyright and trademark for Superboy at that time. And I'm actually hesitant to call that a revival because it was only an issue or two. Despite the similarities to the greatest heroes in comics, Roy the Superboy just couldn't steal any thunder from the genuine articles, and like I said, for all intents and purposes, faded into obscurity after 1942. The funeral is over. 
Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, what? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of one to one straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic death and return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. This is Bane. Listen to this promo for the BatmanUniverse.net or I'll break you. The BatmanUniverse.net, your source for all things related to the Dark Knight, including the latest news related to the comics, movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and much more. Each month, an assortment of podcasts are produced, including a bi-monthly comic podcast, special commentaries and interviews, the Batman Universe specials, and a podcast which delves into TV, movie, merchandise, video game news, and beyond. Keep up to date with everything about Batman, get to know the kooky and lovable casts of the podcasts, listen to in-depth conversations about the latest direct-to-video movies, and increase your knowledge about the Dark Knight and his family, only at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'm Dustin from the BatmanUniverse.net, and I approve this message. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Please come back next time as we will be looking at episodes of the Superman radio serial. Actually, the next two episodes will be centered on the radio show, so that should be a lot of fun. In the meantime, I want to remind you to stop by the website for show notes and links to back episodes. Definitely 
check out the show notes for this episode to see some examples of Jack Burnley's fantastic Superman artwork. The site will also give you links to the show's RSS feed and the iTunes store, both of which can be used to subscribe to the show, as well as links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds if you want to follow the show that way. Once again, thanks to Adam and Paul for the email and the website comment. If anyone has any information on those uh, Superman bubblegum card reprints or if you just want to offer your own two cents on anything discussed on the show, please email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. And let's not forget about the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Updates about new episodes of the show are posted on both sites, and I'm proud to be affiliated with both. And lastly, I want to invite you to check out my other podcasts, Legends of the Batman at batmanlegends.com and Green Lantern's Light at greenlanternslight.com if you want to hear my friends and me talk about characters other than Superman. Though, given that we're all Superman fans, Superman does tend to come up quite a bit in the conversation. But as always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in his copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. directions will the lives of innocent millions be spared superman can you hear me superman what who is this superman you'll find out general and when you do come to me superman if you dare i defy you come come and kneel before zard